Listener discretion is strongly advised. Sometimes this podcast contains themes of a sexual nature in relation to the crimes that we talk about. This podcast contains triggers such as violence and or abuse and sometimes contains adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to If I Go Missing, and let's get going with your dose of true crime family time. Most of y'all know, but for any of our new true crime family members out there, I'm your host Megan, here with my mom, and I'm your co-host Lynn. So today we have an infamous story for you all, and we will be telling you all about the prisoners who actually escaped from Alcatraz and had never been found. With this being the first to release in the month of October, I want to tell you what we have coming up this month. Every week, we hope to kind of bring a little bit of a spookier case up until Halloween, and boy, is that one gonna be a, that one's gonna be an interesting one. So hopefully we can up the creepiness factor just a little bit each week while still keeping you informed with the facts and with the utmost respect for the victims. Now that that's settled, let's go to Alcatraz. All right, let's go. In its heyday, it was the ultimate maximum security prison. Located on a lonely island in the middle of San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz, AKA The Rock, and no, I don't mean Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I mean The Rock because it looks like it's on a rock had held captives since the Civil War. That is so cool. You didn't know that? <laughs> I didn't know it dated that far back. Honestly, I didn't either until I read the episode. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of like, kind of came around the time of the mobsters and the gangsters, but I guess that's when it mm-hmm. just got its popularity. <laughs> it was when it got so cool. Yeah, you know. You win some, you lose some, <laughs> and they lost it. There you go. Although this place does have a very long history, it was in 1934, the high point of a major war on crime, that Alcatraz was reforfeited into the world's most secure prison. Its eventual inmates included dangerous public enemies like Al Capone, criminals who had a history of escaping other penitentiaries, and the occasional Oddball characters like the infamous Birdman of Alcatraz. Yeah, who hadn't heard of him? I mean, come on. Yeah. He's like a he's like a household name. I didn't know what he even there for. No, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. When, really. when I hear Birdman of Alcatraz, I think of Mary Poppins. Come feed the little birds. Oh, I think of um You think Alfred Hitchcock's birds, birds, birds. Oh dear Lord, no. I try never to think of that anymore. Um, Gilligan's Island, the bird man from Alcatraz sent letters and, <laughs> yeah, this is a trip, man. I can see him up there with all those little pigeons in the cages. I got this. Oh, kind of like Hogwarts. No, these were nasty, gross pigeons pooping everywhere. Those are really a lot grosser than owls. <laughs> well, okay, okay. If you looked at the owlery in Harry Potter, it had, it had owl poop everywhere. Well, don't anywhere a bird, but no, pigeons are pigeons are really gross. 
Sorry, if you're a pigeon flyer like my dad was, you're probably going, they are not. Yeah, they are nasty. He was a pigeon flyer? <laughs> yeah, he had a big old coop in the back. I mean, a big coop, a big coop. We used to walk in in the backyard and, yeah, daddy raced them. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. That's yep. enough information on our family. <laughs> in the 1930s, Alcatraz was already a forbidding place, surrounded by the cold and rough waters of the Pacific. But this redesign included tougher iron bars, a series of strategically positioned guard towers, and strict rules, including a dozen checks a day of the prisoners because they were there often because they escaped other penitentiaries. So all of these strict rules made escape seem near impossible. Were those other penitentiaries surrounded by horrible water crashing up on the rocks against the outside border? <laughs> I mean, this place is really, I mean, it, it's like, how do you get in? How do you get out? You get in by boat. Yeah. So why can't you get out by boat? Because they don't give prisoners boats. True, but if prisoner's smart enough, I guess he could find his way onto that boat. I mean, if you if you were able to get out of the prison somehow, all you'd have to do is slip onto the boat. In your prison uniform? I mean, yeah, or kill a passenger and take their clothes. There were means of escape. It's <laughs> just a, a very crafty person to do it. And these were the craftiest, so, literally. Yeah. No, no, literally. They, like, got out by making crafts. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not that it couldn't be done. It's that it shouldn't be done. And, you know, most people didn't really want to risk their lives for it. Yeah, no. Despite the odds, from 1934 until the prison was closed in 1963, 36 men tried 14 separate escapes nearly all were caught or didn't survive the escape it's because of this that alcatraz was viewed as a final destination prisoners had very little extra motive to try and escape despite conditions that made it nearly impossible they had nothing to lose really i mean other than you know their life which i mean that, that's a good enough reason for me i don't know you're also in prison probably for life so well, there you go. <laughs> Sketch 22. While most people didn't survive the escape attempts, the fate of three particular inmates, however, remains a mystery to this day. And here's their story. We'll start with Frank Morris. Frank Lee Morris was one of those prisoners with special skills. Morris was orphaned at the age of 11 in Washington, D.C., and shortly thereafter, he began his life as a criminal. Experts say Morris had extremely polished mental faculties and was even said to have an exceptional IQ of 133. And he was kind of cute, too, for being a rough and tough prisoner back in the day. <laughs> you know what's so funny is he was orphaned at the age of 11. And there went his crime spree, or began his crime spree. <sighs> Can you think of what this man went through? I mean, an 11-year-old child, he's got to do what he's got to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make you tough. It's going to make you hard. And it can make you a really 
pissy. I don't care if I kill you person. I don't believe, I mean, I could prove myself wrong in five seconds, but, you know, when we get down to it, I don't believe he had violent crimes. I think he was just notoriously smart, but somehow got caught. Well, I mean, you know, but he learned to survive is what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know. But it never said how he was overfed. It didn't say that if, like, his parents died in a car crash or... If they just up and let, you know, like it never, yeah, it never said how or why. Just all I could find was that he was orphaned. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of make you a little. Oh yeah, regardless of the situation, hard and resilient. Yeah, yeah, regardless of the situation, mm-hmm. I just found it odd that I couldn't. Yeah, find a reason why. Mm-hmm. Documentation was so great back then. His intelligence was disturbing because. He used his intelligence not to pursue an honest living, but rather to embark on a path that was always on the wrong side of the law. He was also smart enough to recruit others. Theft, robbery, and burglary became his trades, but his true specialty was escaping prisons. Intelligence. He never had, he never had the violent crime. He was intelligent. Crimes. But doesn't that tell you an 11-year-old child seeking attention, seeking... Survival. Yeah. I want to be caught. I want somebody to care enough about me to correct me. It also never said if he went into an orphanage or if he yeah. was just like on the streets. I ain't no telling about them. Yeah. I mean, so mm-hmm. if he was, in fact, just on the streets, that's how he would have to live. Even an orphanage back then. That's true. I mean, come on. You probably had minimal, at best, federal mandates. Yeah. Children were very... Undervalued. Neglected. Yeah. Children were undervalued anyway. Mm -hmm. The the antage of um, you should be seen and not heard. Mm Mm-hmm. That was like law then. (laughs) Unspoken law. You know? So, either way, no wonder this guy, he just wanted attention. Yeah, I mean, the guy was like a prison Houdini. Frank Morris entered his first prison at the age of 13. No, And by the age of 20, he was considered a career criminal. But see, he had a career. All of this activity landed him in prison off and on for his entire adult life. While serving time, he didn't sit around and count the days until relief. He figured out a way to speed up time for his departure. He was the mastermind of the Alcatraz escape, and he had plenty of practice rounds before his stay at Alcatraz. He also pulled off several escapes from other correctional facilities in the eastern United States. He was so compelling, in fact, that he was later portrayed by Clint Eastwood in the Hollywood classic Escape from Alcatraz. Okay, so he's the brains behind the operation. Basically, yeah. And one day, the brain met the brawn. Okay. While Frank was a temporary resident in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, he met and made acquaintances with two men named John and Clarence Anglin. The Anglin brothers, similar to Morris, were career criminals who stuck together. I get it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, But how could... It not have occurred to anyone that maybe they should have separated these guys at some point in time. 
Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, you do that in in daycare. Way back there. Daycare. Little Johnny and little Freddie, mm, them two get in trouble all the time. You just put them in separate rooms at least. <laughs> Is there a reason we couldn't do that with these two? You go to Atlanta and you go to um, whatever, Savannah Prison. Y'all can send each other letters. No more communication. <laughs> well, they hadn't met up until this point. True. So nobody knew what they would become. It's just like looking back on it, it's like. Oh, yeah. Maybe that was a bad idea. Yeah. Maybe we should have put him in, like, holding block B and them in, like, C. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, so technically it was no one's fault because nobody knew what they'd become. But it was the setup for one heck of a story to come. The Anglin brothers were reportedly inseparable. And the one thing they could not, or at least chose not, to escape was one another. The sons of migrant farmers, they had some 11 other brothers and sisters. Holy moly, no wonder they got in trouble. Mom yeah. and daddy couldn't keep up with all them. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. You outnumbered. Yeah. That's enough. That's enough for a basketball team. Who? <laughs> I would. Mm. I can't just, the, the dynamic of this time period just blows my mind. Like, I can't imagine growing up like that, you know? Yeah. But, like, back in those days, especially mm -hmm. being farmers, you needed a lot of kids. Yeah. You didn't Do have not call children, child labor services. That is just how the world worked back then. You people. didn't have children. You have farm hands. Exactly. Yeah. And somebody was that one day realized that, hey, that's child labor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at this point, it wasn't. Still was terrible, but not. Yeah. Anyways, moving on. One thing investigators and armchair detectives alike often point to is their travels to North. One thing about the England brothers that investigators and armchair detectives at home alike always point to is their travels north to Lake Michigan in the summertime. There, they pick cherries and learn how to swim in the strong and frigid waters of the Great Lakes. Preparation for their later years in life. Being strong swimmers may have been essential to survival as the waters of San Francisco Bay are notoriously rough and frigid. Swimming in the Great Lakes would have been great training for the treacherous waters they would find themselves in in later years. Life skills. Yeah, yeah. The two brothers began a life of crime at an early age and followed a similar pattern to that of Morris. Robbery was their way of life, and this had built them up quite a rap sheet and landed them in and out of federal prisons during their late adolescence and early adult lives. Their typical robbery took place at banks and establishments that were closed to make sure that they didn't have to use a weapon. That was nice. And smart. Mm -hmm. In fact, they only used a weapon one time. Do you want to guess what this weapon was? Yes. It was a toy gun. No, oh, that was sweet of them. See, they didn't want to hurt people. They they weren't bad guys. No, I mean they weren't violent criminals. You yeah. know, like they're they're mm -hmm. nothing though, like what we see today. Yeah. Like they, 
to me, it just seems like means of survival. I mean, you shouldn't rob. Don't mm-hmm. take that as a right to go rob. But, like, I don't know. It just seems like they're all just trying to survive. Yeah. Well, I mean, people now think of things that are insane. Um, the thing was, for a while, don't, like, double-click the um, door lock on your car. Because when it beeps, it sends some sort of signal, and they were picking up on that. They made a machine or whatever to pick up on that and break into your car and whatever, whatever. And it's like, all right, if you can do this, why the heck don't you use it for good? But, I mean, it's the same thing. These were not stupid people. These were not people that didn't have options. It's just that was the only option they could think of and the best option, and they were darn good at it. Well, I think, too, it comes down to... I know back then, I'm sure, and I'm sure it is today, it comes back to economics. I mean, if you take a look at it, the criminals are mostly in the lower sectors. Yeah. You do have white-collar crime and blue-collar criminals that are just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's everywhere. Nobody's excluded. Yeah. But back in those days, making enough money to really make something of yourself Mm -hmm. would take a lot from a farmer. Yeah. No, they're more underestimated, if possible, than they are now. Yeah. While not necessarily violent, the two brothers had a long rap sheet, which is a record of arrest and prosecution, a.k.a. rap sheet. And they were the guests at several federal prisons. But it was none other than the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary that served as the staging ground for what would happen at Alcatraz. The Anklin brothers tried several times, however unsuccessfully, to escape the grounds. Frank Morris, on the other hand, would later be transferred to Louisiana Federal Penitentiary, where he successfully managed to escape and went on the run for an entire year. In the end, it was because of their repeated escape attempts and general lack of respect for authority that made these three men the perfect candidates for the federal prison where escape was impossible. Alcatraz. The maximum security level prison was regarded by the guards who worked there as America's most escape-proof prison. But, if I do say so myself, Titanic was also unsinkable. <laughs> Nothing is impossible. There is a will, there is a way. Hmm? While Morris was decidedly the brains of the escape that would take place years later, the Anklin brothers were the brawn. Together, they would form a partnership that pulled off one of the most daring prison escapes in American history. My God, that came out Southern. Daring. <laughs> daring. <laughs> you think I did? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not redoing it. <laughs> Screw it. That's your turn, by the way. The facility of Alcatraz itself is meant to be a fortress. It is designed to keep inmates from ever leaving the island. Braving the waters was a bad idea, as the temperatures in San Francisco Bay can dip into the 40s. The building itself was reinforced with barbed wires and watchtowers that were stationed with armed guards, and the whole system they had going here, right off the coast of San Francisco Bay, worked really, really well, too. Yeah, until Frank arrived. (laughs) Yeah. The year was 1960. When Frank Morris arrived at Alcatraz, 
And that year, just a little bit later on, John Anglin became an inmate. And wouldn't you know it, just three months after John, Clarence arrived. And as luck would have it, and looking back, good Lord, I don't know how, but they all managed to be placed right next to each other. Um, I'm just going to leave it at sheer dumb luck. Emphasis on the dumb. I mean, if you're going to have the most secure prison and all these things that you've done to make it so secure you can't escape don't put people that have already escaped from other prisons side by side in the lump okay you have no choice but putting john and fred by each other but good lord don't put sam and george with them you can't don't Do you put the whole gang <laughs> yeah. yeah do you want give, to tell them the best plan give them a key for god's sake save all the trouble and jesus louisa so Sheer dumb luck. Yeah. It was sheer luck on the Anglin brothers and Frank's part and the dumb on Alcatraz's part. There you go. Spell that one out. What most people don't know, though, is that there's actually a fourth character in this plot. Of course there is. <laughs> Gotta be more. So, the fourth character in the prison would become a player in the real-life crime saga. This person was a man named Alan West, who came to Alcatraz in 1957. He occupied an adjacent cell and was also brought in on the scheme. He was serving his second term on the rock <laughs> and carried a reputation as an arrogant criminal. And he knew John Anglin from the state penitentiary down in Florida. It's just big old happy family come back together. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what it's getting to. Like, is this, this is honestly a situation just waiting to happen? Yeah, it definitely. Especially when you put them all together. For real, I mean, like the place isn't big enough to spread them out. I mean, come on. I mean, like, at least every other cell or something. Like for real. At first glance, though, the fact that these four prisoners were housed right to each other seems like a glaring oversight or a poor attempt at a joke, especially considering the escape the brothers had committed together in the past. But, as fate would have it, they were all in cells in close proximity with each other. Unbeknownst to prison guards, the four men were preparing something big. The escape plan took several months to design, and it would necessitate the fabrication of clever decoys and water survival gear. The escape plan started to take shape in December of 1961, beginning with the collection of several old saw blades that West allegedly found in one of the utility corridors while cleaning. And this would be why we have janitors now. Either that or people who actually pay attention to what they leave behind. I think now, like trustees and people who have proven I'm here because I made a mistake, not because this is where I want to be or, mm -hmm. you know, career criminals, that kind of stuff. I think the trustees do some of the cleaning and stuff like that. The plan was extremely complex and involved the design and fabrication of ingenious lifelike dummies, water rafts, and life preservers fashioned from over 50 raincoats that had been acquired from other inmates. 
some were donated, and some were stolen. <laughs> donated? Okay. I don't really know how they got donated. I don't know if it was like a generous donation or a... Frankie, I know you're up next. Give it here. <laughs> here, I'll donate it while we're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, you're about to get off this rock. I've still got X amount of time. How about you donate me that coat? <laughs> they would also require a variety of crudely made tools to dig with and to construct the accessories necessary for the escape. By May of 1962, Morris and the Anglin brothers had already dug through the cell six by nine inch vent holes and had started to work on the vent on the top of the cell block. And this is why we have prison cell block rains these days. Oh. So, on some shows that I've watched, um, teams, specialized teams will like randomly go into a cell block unexpectedly in search it generally they're looking for like contraband oh had okay. this been done they probably would have noticed the you know gaping hole in the wall yeah the spoon-sized holes that have been done <laughs> you know and see that's another reason why materials now are so cheap you could not dig crap with a spoon these days that sucker would bend as soon as you put it in the into the dirt <laughs> mm -hmm, back in them days it was made strong Learned our lesson. The Anglins, they put the Anglins together? <laughs> adjacent cells. Oh. The Anglins inhabited adjacent cells, as did West and Morris, who also resided nearby. The inmates would alternate shifts with one working and one being on lookout. They would start work at 5.30 p.m. and continue until 9 p.m., just prior to the lights out count. Meanwhile, John and Clarence started fabricating the dummy heads and even gave them pet names of Oink and Oscar. The heads were crude but lifelike, and they were constructed from a homemade cement powder mixture that included such innocuous materials as soap and toilet paper. <laughs> they were decorated with a flesh tone paint from prison art kits, and human hair from the barbershop. That's actually extremely smart. I know. I told you they would get crafty. <laughs> I, you just literally didn't know. I meant they were going to be like arts and crafty. Pretty. We can't even give prison, prisoners arts and crafts now. There we go. Then, then using glue they had stolen from the glove shop, the inmates also started working to cut and bond the raincoats into makeshift rafts and life preservers. Each evening following the completion of their self-imposed work detail, they would hide the materials on the top of the cell block to minimize any chance of being caught with contraband materials. The inmates also acquainted an elaborate array of handmade tools. West was able to lift an electric hair clipper while working on a paint detail in the barber shop. And he used the clippers along with the drill bit stolen from the industries by another inmate to fashion a makeshift motorized drill. However, the motor proved to be too small and, you know, the project would require a little bit more effective equipment. By a stroke of good luck, West had learned that the prison's vacuum had broken. 
He was permitted to attempt a repair, and while inspecting the machine, he found that it had two motors. He carefully removed one and was able to get the other working, thus deflecting suspicion. Morris and the Anglins were then able to use the vacuum motor for their drill. They attempted the drill out of the roof ventilator. Whoops. Yeah. No. They attempted to drill out of the roof ventilator, but only with limited success. The motor proved too noisy, and it wasn't very effective on top of that. So, you know, two strikes. After a month of long preparation, the inmates had completed fashioning all of their gear they needed for their escape, and they continued working to loosen the ventilator grill on the top of the cell house. Time was ticking by as the men worked. John Anglin carefully completed the valve assembly on a large 6 by 14 foot raft, while Morris modified an accordion-like musical instrument called a concertina, which would be used to rapidly inflate the raft. But while the others had progressed well in their various preparations, Old West had fallen behind in digging out the ventilator grill in the rear of his cell. His primary role had been to construct the life preservers and special wooden paddles for the rafts, tasks which didn't require him to leave his cell. On the night of June 11, 1962, Morris indicated that the chopped ventilator was loose enough and he felt they were ready to attempt the escape. 9.30 p.m. It was just after lights out, and Frank Morris crept up as quietly and slowly as he could as to not raise any alarm, and brought down the dummies from the top of his cell block, and announced that the escape would be staged that very night. Meanwhile, Alan West was still having trouble removing his ventilator grill, and it was getting down to the wire, and West knew without that grill coming off, he wasn't going anywhere. Clarence Anglin knew this too, and he even attempted to assist West in removing the ventilator grill by kicking at it from outside of the cell in the utility corridor, but his efforts were unsuccessful, and the time had officially come. Frank Morris and the Anglins would have no choice but to leave him behind. Well, West, you had one job. <laughs> yeah, you had one job. <laughs> Dang, dog. Well, no, he had to. He had to make the paddle. He had to like, make the oars and the life preservers. And he got his ventilator. Okay, so now we are stuck out here. We have no oars and we have no life preservers because you couldn't get your ventilator off. Toss that shit up. Let's go. We're getting out of here. West, come on out. Remember, stitches get stitches. We're probably gonna be back. <laughs> The three men that were left cut their losses and began their final 30-foot climb up to the plumbing cellhouse roof. Once they reached the cellhouse roof, they had to then traverse 100 feet across the rooftop and then carefully maneuver themselves down 50 feet of piping to the ground near the entrance to the shower area. And this would be the last that anyone ever saw of Morris and the Anglin brothers. It is now the early morning hours of June 12, 1962. All was quiet 
and the routine bed checks were to start taking place, except on the routine early morning bed checks, wait, hold on. It was now the early morning hours of June 12th, 1962. All was quiet and the routine bed checks were to start taking place. Except the routine early morning bed checks turned out to be anything but. Three convicts were not in their cells. John Anglin, his brother Clarence, and Frank Morris. In their beds, were very cleverly built dummy heads made of plaster, flesh-toned paint, and real human hair that apparently fooled the night guards. The prison went into lockdown, and an intensive search began. The FBI was immediately asked to help. The FBI office in San Francisco set leads for offices nationwide to check for any record on the missing prisoners. Also, relatives were interviewed... Also... Also, relatives of the men were interviewed, and from there, they compiled all their identification records, and they asked boat operators in the bay to be on the lookout for debris. Within two days, a packet of letters sealed in rubber and related to the men was recovered. Later, some paddle-like pieces of wood and bits of rubber inner tube were found in the water. A homemade life vest was also discovered where it washed up on Cronhite Beach, but extensive searches did not turn up any other items in the area. As days went by, the FBI, the Coast Guard, the Bureau of Prison Authorities, and, and many others began to find more evidence and piece together the ingenious escape plan. Except, they didn't do it all on their own. They had some insider help. Hmm, let me think. Possibly snitch Mr. West. He couldn't get his act together, so now he's going to snitch. I guess so. Dude, if you're going to be in on it, you got to be on with it. you you got to chop, chop. We're on a time frame here. Then well, he going to snitch. No, he did more <laughs> than snitch. This boy sang like a canary. <laughs> yeah, that must be a little bit before uh, snitches get stitches. <laughs> Yeah, I'm assuming that was before that time, but I, I guess if whoever you're snitching on is no longer in the prison, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, unless they send them back. Oh, yeah, You better hope they move you. Can, can I get a new room aside, please? <laughs> can you give me one close to the guard shack? <laughs> I'm telling you right now. That's where you should have put them to begin with. Yeah, this is true. Put one of the little Joe Knockers at every guard check. <laughs> Lord only knows, but this dude, he told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. <laughs> Alan told the FBI exactly how long they had been planning this. When the physical planning and preparation actually started, what tools they used, and what objects they took and made into tools. He even sold out their plan to get away once they made it past the freezing waters in the Bay Area. He's, I told you, he's staying like a canary. They ain't going to let you out. You might as well protect the people. What, you, th you think they're going to take down some of your time for <laughs> snitching out somebody? Mm, no. Whatever, whatever time that would tack on, your plea deal <laughs> is going to even it back out. <laughs> Oh, if no. that's even what you did. We should have ran might, east, man. 
he, he hey, he might have should have just like not sang like a canary, but <laughs> he still did. Oh yeah. He sang the whole song. Oh he did. In a later interview, see he he was interviewed several times. <laughs> West said that their plan had been to use their raft to make their way to Angel Island. <laughs> After resting, they would then re-enter the bay on the opposite side of the island and swim through a waterway called Raccoon Straits, then on into Marin. From there, they would steal a car, burglarize a clothing store, and venture out in their own separate directions. Yeah, but they was going to go in style. First thing they're going to well, do is get some clothes. You can't go in fits. Yeah, we got to go look at styling, man. I mean, I'm sure they didn't go to the nearest Walmart. They went to some nice hootie-tootie place. <laughs> I don't think they had those back then. <laughs> they had five and ten stores. West even told authorities that he had finally been able to complete the removal of his own grill and climb to the top of the roof, but... By then, all the other inmates had disappeared, and with no raft or other means of escape, he was forced to return to his cell. There are so many comments I'm trying not to say. But, dang, dog! Did you think they're going to stand and wait for you for the next two hours and see if you made it? No! Like, come on, they had to go! We are escaping! <laughs> What, what, what don't you get about that? Poor fella. He went to brains to bronze. Mm. When, when they left, he should have just hung it up. Hello? They done left you. They <laughs> left your behind. Lord, not only did you, not only did you have to walk a shame going behind back to the cell, then you tell the authorities, <laughs> I had to go back to my cell because <laughs> they didn't left me. Just <laughs> <laughs> stay in your cell. I'm like, I'm out. I just want to see if they made it. <laughs> really? Just say if you check, don't worry, they're gone. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! He was um not one of those brilliant criminals that got in there as part of the game. No. Hmm. Poor Phil. How did he make it to Alcatraz? I know he ain't escaped nowhere else. <laughs> oh lordy, oh, poor yeah. fella. Crimes for they didn't say. <laughs> I would, but I'd get in trouble again. <laughs> We're probably done for by this point anyway, but I'm sorry. You climb out of your cell again. Climb right back in. OMG. And then sell them out like, like you getting something you, out of excuse it. Excuse me, I'd like to talk now. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't laugh at that, for Christ's sake, you got an issue. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <laughs> I feel like it's an appropriate time to add this in. For decades, speculations abounded as to whether this famous escaped attempt had actually been successful. The FBI spent several years investigating and later resolved that the inmates' plan had failed. Now, how did they come to that conclusion? Well... In order to come to an official conclusion, the FBI laid it out as trying to find a viable solution to each one of the major obstacles the men would have to face to make it successfully to the other side. Problem number one, crossing the bay. The FBI's answer. 
While some younger people have made the more than a mile long swim from Alcatraz over to Angel Island, with the strong currents and frigid waters, the odds were clearly against the men. But these men had also um, swam. At least two of them. Yeah, yeah. They had swam in conditions similar to this. And, I mean, you know, these, <laughs> this is not like me trying to escape. I wouldn't have made it the first 50 feet. But Oh, God, no, I'd trip or something. <laughs> God, you trip and break your ankle. But, um, you know, I mean, obviously these guys were in decent shape of some sort. So just because they're not 21, it does not mean they could not do it. And I mean, I don't think they were like 40s or 50s, like they're, they're trying to act like. I mean, I think they were yeah. like late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem of your life, for God's sake. To know, I have to disagree with the FBI as that being um, totally viable. Problem number two, once on land. The FBI's answer, the plan, according to Alan West, was to steal clothes and a car once on land, but no one ever uncovered any thefts like this despite the high-profile nature of the case. Yeah, like I said, they're not going to go to, for back in those days, your 5 and 10 store and get clothes. They're going to get nice clothes so they can go and blend in with society. Um, but I also feel like they, for all their smart, they, what if, what if they took into account that somebody might get left behind? Yeah. What if a fake story was given? No, that's just true too. Maybe true. Alan didn't completely sing like a canary. He's saying just enough to make them buy the rest of it. I'll tell you what you're already going to figure out when you find the contraband, but that's for the rest of it. Yeah, maybe whoever didn't make it was part of their cover-up. Yeah, I mean, whoever, you know, if, any, if one of us doesn't make it, mm -hmm. this is what you say. And it could have been, too, that they realized that, you know, he's probably going to be pretty pissed that we left. Mm -hmm. So let's swim to another island and, you know, not take the way we told him we were going to take. We told yeah. him we were taking him with us and we didn't. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's that's one thing I, I kind of have thought about through, honestly, through the recording of this episode mm -hmm. is, what if it was a yeah. cover-up, either intentional or unintentional? Yeah. Makes sense. Problem number three. Family ties. The FBI's answer? If the escapees had help, we couldn't substantiate it. The families appeared unlikely to even have the financial means to provide any real support. Bringing clothes from the house and meeting them somewhere? Cross-country. Out of 11 kids, they all still live in the same place? I don't know. So, I mean, you know, it's potentially um, far-fetched that maybe one of the siblings could have gotten to the West Coast and been waiting on them. But that was obviously not substantiated, so probably not. They're probably still back on the farm. The thing is, though, if these people... We, we, we know Frank didn't really have a family. Right. So if John and Clarence are real family men, they aren't going to bring their family into this. They were raised in the South. You got to think about that. Yeah. I ain't going to let my family go down for my, my mistake. Yeah. 
And that's just that's just our mentality. Yeah. But also family first. Family's gonna protect family. Family's gonna go out there and try to help family if family says they're escaping. Yeah, but it might also be too risky to tell the family the plan. It's true. There's a lot of ifs. Or, I mean, they could have told the family so that they weren't worried, but, you know, mum's the word because yeah. blood's thicker than water. Yeah. <clears throat> Problem number four, going MIA. FBI's answer? For 17 years, we worked on the case. No credible evidence emerged to suggest the men were still alive, either in the United States or overseas. So they're gone feeding the fishes, apparently. Continues. While the FBI officially closed the case on December 31st, 1979, and turned over responsibility to the U.S. Marshal Service, which continues to investigate in the unlikely event that the trio is still alive. And how likely is unlikely? Considering. I mean, they gotta be pretty up there. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm 56. And, and this happened before you were born. Right. So they were what? They, well, they wouldn't be maybe 76, 80. Eh. Okay. Depend, and depending on their age. I mean, because we're still speculating on their age. Right, right. So, you know, I, mean, I don't think it... Bah, I didn't think it was very likely until a letter surfaced. The questions have stymied law enforcement agencies, haunted family members, and intrigued the public for more than half a century. Did the three men who escaped in 1962 from Alcatraz, then known as the world's most impenetrable island prison, a place for only the most hardened of criminals actually survive their brazen attempt? And if so, are they still alive all these years later? To this day, Frank Morris, Clarence Anglin, and John Anglin remain the only people who have ever escaped Alcatraz and have never been found. A disappearance that is one of the country's most notorious unsolved mysteries. The prevailing theory is that Morris and the Anglin brothers probably drowned after leaving Alcatraz Island and attempted to cross the frigid San Francisco Bay. But a newly surfaced letter sent to the San Francisco police in 2013 obtained by CBS affiliate KPIX, a man claiming to be one of the escapees, said all three of the prisoners survived the attempt, but he was the only one still living. The letter read, the handwritten letter began with, My name is John England. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. The letter claimed Morris died in 2008 and that Clarence Anglin died in 2011. The note continued, If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year to get medical attention... I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. The report said the letter had been sent to the San Francisco Police Department, Richmond Station, and handed over to the FBI in 2013. The FBI tested the letter in 2013 for fingerprints, but reportedly said the results were inconclusive. 
The letter had been kept from the public for five years, though. Is this a real deal? I'm not sure. Because, get this, okay? U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke, who inherited the unsolved case in 2003, told the Associated Press in 2012 that he didn't know whether any members of the trio were still alive, but he had seen enough evidence to make him wonder. Okay, what evidence? The evidence included credible reports that the Anglin's mother, for several years, received flowers delivered without a card, and that the brothers attended her funeral in 1973 disguised in women's clothes despite a heavy FBI presence. Then, an alleged photo of the Anglin brothers hiding out in Brazil about 13 years after they vanished was shown during a special on the History Channel that aired in 2015, and I have seen it because I watched that episode. A friend of the Anglins, Fred Barisi, claimed to have run into the brothers in Rio de Janeiro in the 1970s, and he says he's the one that took the photo. According to the special, it was not until 1992 that he gave the photo to the Anglin family, who then turned the photo over to a retired U.S. Marshal investigator in 2015. And what happened to the Southern family sticking together? I mean, again, maybe they didn't tell them. You know? Yeah. Maybe they thought it was too dangerous for them to know. Yeah. But if I, I thought it was my relative that escaped, I wouldn't hand it over to the marshals. Well, who are you going to hand it to a private investigator? Because a private investigator is going to hand it over to the marshals, but... If, no, I'll keep it with me. What if there's a chance of finding them? I thought we didn't want to find them because they're escaped criminals. They're still our family. Okay. Great. So if I become an escaped criminal, you're in it like 20 years later. And a protective thing. That way I don't let people know that you've been spotted in Rio de Janeiro. Living it up while I'm still over here. I'm screwed. <laughs> I would think of it more as find a way to go to them or get some... Get a message to them that I know you're still alive, whatever, whatever, as opposed to, uh, excuse me, U.S. Marshal, here they are. This is where they're at. You can go arrest them now. <laughs> so. I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. the letter was given in 2013 when he said he was bad off from cancer. So maybe they knew that he had passed and that mm -hmm. was when they turned the photo in. Maybe. But, you know. Dyke told the Fresno station KFSN-TV in 2016 that Breezy was a known con man mm. and an expert working for the marshals believed the photo was not legit. Despite his doubt, Dyke had to continue to investigate the photo as a lead in the case. Then something else came out. The story was told by the New York Post. David Widener is working on a book that will contain more evidence, including a letter from Boston crime boss Whitney Bolger, who did time with the brothers in Alcatraz. In a 2014 letter to Ken Widener, the Post reported Bolger said he instructed the brothers on how to navigate the San Francisco Bay Current. They undoubtedly had done exactly what I told him. Bulger wrote in his letter to Ken Widener, Bulger taught the men that when you disappear, you have to cut all ties because, as he told the Post, this is the mistake that I made. 
you have to cut all ties. Totally makes sense. But what do your living relatives say about that? I mean, I understand they have to cut all ties, or I want to know my relatives alive. I don't, I don't know. The nephew of John and Clarence Anglin told CBS that his grandmother used to receive roses with John and Clarence's signature on the card several years after the escape. But federal authorities have been quick to squash any rumors of a successful great escape. Because, you know, I mean, it would have been the most ingenious prison break of all times if it had worked. But this story wouldn't be complete if I didn't tell you about that one supposed deathbed confession. And what deathbed confession was that? Well, in 2016, investigators were looking into a purported deathbed confession a man gave to his nurse, which claimed that he and an accomplice helped the trio escape Alcatraz. Sources who have reportedly seen the document told KFSN that Two men were waiting on a white boat in the bay and they picked up the escapees as they paddled towards shore and brought them up the coast to Seattle. The detail coincides with a report filed the day after the escape by now-retired San Francisco cop Robert Chichi. He detailed how he was off-duty when he actually spotted a white boat in the bay with its lights off in the marina the same night of the prison break. It appeared empty, but later flashed a spotlight on the water and disappeared into the night. Chi-Chi told the station that the FBI interrogated him over why he did not immediately report the boat. And honestly, really don't know why. However, back to the deathbed confession, the dying man wasn't done. He went on to say that it wasn't long after the escape that he murdered the trio and buried their bodies near a highway, according to the outlet. Author and Alcatraz scholar Michael Esslinger told the station that he and a former federal investigator went to the scene but could not find any bodies. But, the escape to Seattle would explain why there wasn't any robberies in town like there was supposed to have been. If the 2013 letter and deathbed confession are not to be believed and all the men survived, to this day, Morris would be 94 years old and John and Clarence Anglin would be 90 and 89. I mean, for them to have actually made it, it would have had to have been something like this story of somebody met them. Why would you meet prisoners trying to escape Alcatraz? They give you money? Where did they get the money from? What promise did they have to get you to go out there and risk yourself ending up in Alcatraz for helping them to escape Alcatraz? So that, it, it, or maybe they didn't get help at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe they paddled to one of the islands. And stayed off the beaten path long enough to get out of the Bay Area. Yeah. And hit up some stores for clothes then. Yeah, I mean, it really wouldn't make too much sense to hit up stores right there in the Bay Area. Because you don't want to hang out there very long. Oh. I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. 
always remember, be smart, be safe, and talk to your mama so you don't go missing. And take her advice. Don't push it. We'll see you all next week for all new episodes.